Amen. Amen. We're going to pray for Kenny in just a second. Oh, thank you, pulpit boy. I have a tip for you. Thank you. Take it lightly. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we're going to pray for Kenny. Before we do, I wanted to uh, let you know how you can pray for Kenny and our other workers. Um, we have these little sheets out in the foyer for you. This has prayer concerns from all of our international workers just for you. You can grab it real quick out there. Additionally, because we are a praying church, uh, this week on Facebook, those of you who use Facebook, can find a video every day for one of our partners. Now, these aren't people sent out from here, but these are our broader partners through the International Mission Board. And every day, we'll, you'll get a description of who to pray for and a cool little video uh, explaining their ministry. So be on the lookout for that. We really encourage you to be people of prayer this week for missions. Let me go ahead and pray now. God, we do lift up Kenny Houston and his family Father, I pray specifically for this young group of people that he's meeting with and studying the Bible with and sharing Jesus with. I also pray for this sweet family who are having problems in their marriage. I lift them up and ask that you comfort them. God, I pray for the Houstons, especially for this peace that he mentioned. Central Asia is a rough place to live right now. And governor of his, of his region and also the president of his country are calling for the removal of people just like Kenny. So I pray for peace among Christians and Muslims so that Kenny can stay and does not have to leave and that he can preach and share the gospel. God, you have gone before us in your spirit to reach the nations and I pray as we study the text today that you will pierce our hearts to be mindful and ask the question, how can we be involved in the mission of Christ? God, I pray these and many other blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I go ahead and turn to Luke 2. Luke chapter 2. If you've been with us, you know we're studying through Luke. Uh, we're going to take a pause and go backwards. Um, we're not restarting the book, don't worry, but we are going to go back to look at the Christmas story a little bit in Luke 2 today. So if you can find Luke 2. Uh, as you're turning, I want to uh, do something a little different. I want to call your attention to a movie I saw recently. Um, I'll try to put it up there. I don't know if I can or not. Let's try it. Uh, this movie is called, it's on Netflix. And this movie is called, yes, this movie is called Boss Baby. Have you seen it? It's on Netflix right now. It's not an instant classic. I will warn you about that. But here's the premise of this movie. It's really cute. It's about this baby who uh, arrives, and this isn't the clip I was thinking of, but this baby is, that's okay, you can show it. Um, this baby arrives, and he is born with a three-piece suit on, and he's got the presence of a power CEO. And the whole movie, at the beginning of it, the hook, is this little baby comes into the house of this firstborn child, Templeton, and he begins to claim every part of the house as his, right? So he claims bedtime as his, and he claims um, mealtimes 
as his by crying and manipulating the parents. And Templeton's whole world changes because of this little boss baby coming into the home. And if you've had two kids, you'll see how this happens. All the attention to the firstborn is now given to the secondborn because he's a baby. And that's what's going on here. That's enough of that. But I wanted to show you that because I saw some of it recently and it reminded me a little bit of the Christmas story because what you see in the Christmas story in Luke, Jesus isn't the boss baby, but he doesn't wear a suit. But you do see something that's glaring from the text if you study it. What you see is God is sending this baby to claim turf as his. Right? He's sending Christ to say, this part of the world is mine. This part of the world is mine. I own this. In fact, all of the world is mine in Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to see today as we study. It's, it's like being at the beach. If you've ever been at the beach when the tide is coming in, and the whole first part of the beach where you were building your sandcastles, the ocean's going to take it and say, that's mine. And over here where you were digging that big hole, the ocean take it. Over here where you left your sandals, ocean's going to claim it. Because everything in this zone, the ocean claims as mine. And this is what we see God doing at the birth of Jesus. So today I just want to dust over the Christmas story. If you've ever been at uh, the, a crime scene, a robbery after it's taken place, hopefully you weren't the robber. But if you've ever been there, you've seen the police dust the scene for fingerprints, and when they're done, there are these charcoal fingerprints left all over the place. This is what we want to look for in the Christmas story. The fingerprints of mission in the Christmas story will challenge us today. From day one in the manger, God was thinking missions. He was claiming the whole planet for his own. So the question is not going to be Will this king of the world reach the nations? Well, surely he will. The question is going to be, how can we be involved as a church and as individuals? So what I want to do is look at three characters here from the story. The first one, the shepherds. Hopefully we can look at this and trampoline from manger to missions, right? We're going to look at the shepherds. And as the story of the shepherds starts, what I want you to see in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, is even the start of the famous Christmas story has an international flair. And you wouldn't necessarily expect this, right? It's about a baby being born to the Jews in Judea. It's a Jewish story, but yet Luke makes sure it has an international flavor. In verse 1, how does this start? In those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, right? Here's a Roman ruler who says the whole world, what that meant was Rome ruled enough that people could look at Rome and say, when we take a census, it's a census of the whole world. He was taking a census, but listen to what one author said. One author said, the ruler of the world was busy governing his subjects and expanding the boundaries of his empire, while without his knowledge, the true and rightful ruler of the world was being born in a tiny village at the eastern end of the empire. Jesus was born as the king of the world. And look in verse 8 as we see the shepherds enter into the story. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. 
And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So I want you to see three things here pertaining to missions. First, you have to ask the question, with all of the people in Judea and the surrounding regions, how did the shepherds get dibs on the birth of Christ? Why did God come to them first and announce this to the shepherds? Well, it could be because they're geographically close, right? They're near where the baby's being born. It could be because Jesus is the Lamb of God, and these guys are watching lambs. They are shepherds. Jesus is the good shepherd. But more than that, I think it's because these fellows are in no way fancy. Okay, They're not rich. They're not particularly righteous. In fact, in that culture, you may know shepherds were frowned upon. They were looked down as kind of a lesser class of folks. Christ the King has come to people you might not naturally trust. Shepherds weren't people who were trusted in that culture. And yet, here's Jesus with a meek birth. He is coming to save people and to announce to the shepherds, people you might not naturally trust, that he has come as king of the world. I was reminded this week as I was reading of a story from back in 2013. In 2013, the tensions were high between uh, Libya and the U.S. Just a few months before, in 2012, the U.S. Embassy in Benghazi was attacked. So in that area of the world, man, things were intense. Uh, but there was a fella living in Benghazi at that time named Ronnie Smith. You may have heard Ronnie's story, but he was there uh, about eight months after the attack when tensions were high and Americans were asked to leave. They were asked to leave because uh, one leader of al-Qaeda in Libya had said, we're going to start taking out Americans at all costs. But Ronnie stayed because Ronnie's job as a believer, as a Christian missionary, was to teach young people, just like Kenny said there. And so he was working in a school, and he sent his uh, wife and his toddler son back to America, and he was to leave on December 12th to join them for Christmas. But what happened on December 5th was Ronnie went for a routine jog, and he happened to jog by that section in Benghazi where the embassy was, and a man stepped out, and he shot him. Ronnie was brutally murdered, staying there to tell people about Jesus. Afterwards, someone tracked down one of his students, and this is what he said. So the Libyan teenager, a male teenager, this is what he said. He said, we, Ronnie used to say this. He said, we were the foundation for the essence of this country, and that if we were to succeed now, Libya would also succeed. Ronnie was and always will be Libya's best friend. How in the world can an American guy go to a place where most Westerners are fleeing to talk to a people that most Westerners at that time naturally did not trust 
Here's why. You talk to people in Ronnie's life, they said he got it. He got the fact that Jesus came for people that you might not naturally connect to. He came for all people, and you can see that in the lives of the shepherd. Ronnie gave his life as Christ gave his. Now look in verse 10. I want you also to see that from the get-go, angels came to announce the good news of the Messiah, and his salvation is for all the people. Now this would have landed on the shepherds like, oh, he's saying Jesus came for all the Jews. And he did as far as that goes. But later in Luke Acts, specifically in Acts 15, we see Luke use this term people, and he's using it for all the Gentiles, all of God's people among every tribe and nation in the world. The angels are announcing that God in Christ, the baby, has come to seize all of his elect out from all peoples. Jesus is no limited localized God. He's global. He's international. And thirdly here, in verse 14, you can see more globalish talk if you know what to look for because we read on earth peace will be established, right? He doesn't just say in Judea. doesn't just say in Jerusalem or Israel. He says on earth peace will be Established for all of those who know Jesus Christ. This peace harkens back to the story of Adam and Eve. Because when they fell, unity and harmony was broken. And the world began to shatter. Right? Shalom, goodness and wholeness with God, was broken and replaced by all the nastiness that we have in our world today. But the angels were saying... There will be peace one day. God will cosmically restore this earth as a part of his great plan for the entire universe. And individuals will be a part of that. Individuals like the shepherds will experience peace between God and man that only Jesus can bring. Only Jesus can bring people to God because only Jesus paid the sacrifice. Only Jesus gave of himself and died to pay the penalty for our sins. Only Jesus can be the great peacemaker between God and man. One of my favorite stories when I was a kid was the story of Robin Hood. Right? You know Robin Hood. Robin Hood was forced into this life of outlawry because of the evil oppression of Prince John. Prince John was the ruler in the land, but he was kind of a phony ruler. Right In that story, he was the brother of the real king, King Richard, and King Richard was always away. He was never near. And as you read through Robin Hood, adventure after adventure, he would do all of these good things, but there was always a sense that nothing would ever be quite right. Evil would always be reigning here until King Richard came back. That's what we see here with Jesus. The world is awry. Nothing will ever be quite right until the Messiah comes and he has come in Jesus Christ. And now, for the first time, all of the ethnic groups in the whole world have access to God through Jesus Christ because the true king has come and he's claiming what is his. Only Jesus can bring this true peace. Now finally, look in verse 16. Watch how the shepherds respond here. 
And they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that they had been uh, told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. Listen to this. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been shown to them. Here's the picture we see. The shepherds come and they witness Jesus, right? They see the Christ child and then they worship. After they worship, they go and witness. Witness, worship, witness. They see Jesus for all he is. They treasure him. They worship him. And then they go and they witness themselves. Shepherds are goer. They couldn't help themselves. Status quo wouldn't work anymore. After they had seen the Christ child. We have needs for goers today. Consider some of these numbers. These are just numbers that I read this week about the current need for workers among refugees globally. This doesn't count all the people like uh, some of the people Kenny is uh, working for who are nationals in their own country. Just for refugees, there's a huge need for workers. Consider this, every 60 seconds, globally, 24 people are forced to flee their homeland. Every 60 seconds. That's going to be 1,200 people during this sermon, if I keep it short. They're forced to leave their homeland. Due to conflict and persecution, globally, totally, we have about 65.3 million Forcibly displaced refugees right now. 65.3 million. That's the entire population of the UK. That is a lot of displaced peoples. About half of these are under 18, right? Think about when most of you got converted to Jesus. Probably between 8 and 22, most of us. Most of these refugees are ripe. About 50% of them are 18 and younger. Ready to hear about Jesus. 10 million people are currently stateless. You know what stateless means? It means you're denied a nationality. You're denied an education. You're denied health care. You're a person without a country. 10 million, that's the population of North Carolina. You know what the average length of time a refugee will be displaced from their home? 17 years. That's the average. I haven't been married 17 years. I struggle to remember back before Julie. It's been such a great marriage, but man, 17 years is how long these people will live without a country. 50% of the world refugees come from three countries. Syria, Afghanistan, South Sudan. Most of those are Muslims. Just like Levi was telling us about. Some are moving here. We have an opportunity to work with refugees here. If you're interested in that, we can connect you. But there is a need for people from Raleigh to go to these places that are hotbeds for refugee care and share the gospel and share the mercy of Jesus. We need shepherd types who will go witness Christ, worship, and then go and witness. Let's look at the second person here in the story. Next guy named Simeon. He's not as famous as the shepherds. You won't find him in your manger scene in your yard. 
What Simeon the cool do? Look at him in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and he blessed God. And listen to what Simeon says when he sees Jesus. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For mine eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon saw that baby and said, here's a light. Not just for Israel, but for every single people group out there, every single language group, every single socioeconomic class of people. This baby is a light for him. Simeon was like Joseph. He was seen as righteous and devout. Here was a man waiting for the Messiah. He walked into the temple court and he takes that baby and he rejoices. Because he knows that salvation is swaddling in his arms. He has seen a light to the Gentiles. He begins to refer to a famous prophecy. In Isaiah 49.6, we get a look at God actually speaking to Christ. God speaks to the coming one, and this is what he says. It's really good. God says to Christ, back in Isaiah, he says, It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It's too light a thing that you just save the Jews. The Panthers didn't draft Cam Newton just to hold on extra points. right? They want him in on every play. Too light a thing just to be a holder. He's got to be involved in all this. That's what he's saying about Jesus. It's too light a thing for you to just save one people. I want you to save them all. And that's what he does. Kurds of Turkey, dyed people of China, Japanese like Amy told us about a couple of weeks ago. God is plucking them out for himself. Drawing them to worship the great King Jesus. And later in Isaiah 49.6, we also have this as a part of the same prophecy. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So the claiming of the nations involves this light-dark contrast. You see this? Jesus is the light. Everywhere else there's darkness. And Paul picks up on this in Colossians 1. Read what he says in Colossians 1.13. Paul said, he has delivered us from what? The domain of darkness into what? He's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. This claiming that Jesus is doing as he comes as the Messiah is domain transfer. You're out of this deep pit, this realm of darkness where Satan has blinded people and you come into a place where you can see the light of God in Jesus Christ. You can see the truth. You can see that there's only one way to be reconciled to God. It is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He is the light 
the great rescuer. And he brings us into a kingdom ruled by a kind and compassionate and good and gentle king, Jesus himself. I knew we were having Missions Week, so I read recently the story of Amy Carmichael. I don't know if you know her story. She was a missionary to India, 1900, uh, early. And uh, she had one story in there in South India about going out to a village and she met the 16-year-old girl. And the 16-year-old girl um, was not a believer in Christ. She was uh, a member of a goldsmith caste and none of her people had ever been Christians. But the 16-year-old girl was in school one day and someone gave her a Bible and she began to read it. And God opened her eyes. But at the same time, as she was reading her Bible, she knew that some of her friends who have even spoke of Jesus began to disappear. Or they've been ostracized by their families. Or they've been tortured by their family. And so the 16-year-old girl, as she read her Bible, she began to want Jesus and see Jesus. And so what she did is she ran one day. She fled her home and she ran to the home where Amy Carmichael was staying home of a group called the Walkers. And what happened then was amazing because people from her village, her family began to surround this house and beg for her back. They began to camp out. Forty men camped out in the yard and said, we will not let this girl run away. She will not believe in Jesus. So much so that they began to lock the house and board up the shutters and the persecution intensified. People from the village tried to work their black magic. They would put charms and burn them around the house, try to smoke uh, magic spells. They used poison to try to inject poison into the air to get her to leave the house. None of this worked. They eventually burned down the school where she got the Bible. This girl never turned. Finally, in a climactic scene, the chief of police was called into the village, and the mother of the girl entered into the house where Amy Carmichael was, and this little girl, who would later be given the name Jewel of Victory. And the mother began to beat her own head against the floor and said, you can't have Jesus, just come back. I will give you anything. Just don't follow Jesus. And you know what this little girl said over and over again? Jewel of Victory said this from Psalm 27.1, The Lord is the light and my salvation whom shall I fear? The Lord is the light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Only Jesus is the light for all nations. She got it. She grabbed a hold and she didn't let go. And she was later married to a Christian man and led a fruitful life. The light shone in the darkness and ripped that girl right into heaven. And as we leave Simeon, I just want to point out one more thing here. Notice in the text, Luke 2.25. Notice his contribution to the birth of Jesus here. What was he doing that made him stand out? Here's what he was doing according to verse 25. He was expectantly, expectantly communing with the Holy Spirit, waiting for God to work. Right? We call that prayer now. You're talking to God and you're waiting for Him to to work. Here is a great man committed to expectant prayer. 
We don't know much about Simeon. Most Bible experts suspect that he was old because he's guaranteed to see Jesus before he dies. So we know that he's old. But nothing in the text tells us that he didn't have a normal vocation. I imagine him as a normal Joe of sorts. Most every man had to have a trade. So I see him as a guy going to work every day, plying his trade, and coming home and devoting certain amount of time every day to pray for God to work among his people and also among the nations. And I really want to share a secret here. <laughs> Probably shouldn't say it, but I would. When I come to church, mission sermons aren't my favorite. All right? Especially when I preach them. <laughs> Even more so when Hunter preaches them. No, that's, he's a great preacher. Come on up here and preach, brother. No, I, I don't necessarily love mission sermons. You know why? Because when I hear these cool stories, I begin to feel a little guilty. Like, I'll never be an A-plus person who lives in another culture, village of Africa, big high-rise buildings in Asia. That's not ever going to be me. I'm not a missionary. I'm a pastor here in America. And I begin to think, oh man, he's going to ask me to go somewhere. Well, I'm not. Because I think most of us here are called to be Simeons. You know what Simeon did? He got up every day. He went to work for the glory of God. And then apparently he came home and he prayed expectantly for God to work among missions. He devoted time. That's the thing about prayer. It's irksome. This type of prayer takes time, right? That means that in our culture, that glorifies work and entertainment as the way to peace. In our culture, setting aside time for prayer is never going to be a big hit. For some of us to be Simeons, that's going to make some hard choices, right? It might mean praying for missions for 30 minutes when you would normally be on Facebook or Instagram. Might mean for some of us eating a faster meal instead of taking two hours to prepare a home cooked meal so that we'll have more time to pray for missions. It might mean that choosing some Friday night, you stay home instead of going to basketball practice for your kids, you stay home and you pray for God to save the nations. It may mean that you put effort late at night, not into career advancement or education, but into praying for missions. These challenging time choices, about them, there's no law. Right? But there is a call. There's a call to pray for the kingdom of God and Christ to advance. And as I said earlier, we've given you chances on these prayer sheets. Grab them on your way out. Pray for the specific need. Be a Simeon and receive the call to pray. One last person here or group of people. Last, I just want to look at the wise men. The wise men came a little later in a different section of the scripture. So you'll have to turn to Matthew. Back a little bit in the Bible to Matthew chapter 2. It's earlier in the text, but it's later in time. A little bit after Jesus was born. We read this, chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, 
wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. Now from what we know from history, these wise men were probably from Persia or Babylon or Assyria. All of those are different ethnic groups than the Jews, right? Yet they are drawn to the Holy Land and the Holy Child. And when they get there, they find not one but two kings. First, they run into King Herod, the crafty old king at the end of his life, cruel, cruel guy, playing his own game of thrones, looking out, always suspicious of others to take his throne. They find him. They also are told the true king is in Bethlehem. So off they went. Look down in verse 9. After listening to the king Herod, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's happy. Rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. Joy. And going into the house, they're not in a manger anymore, they're in a house. They go into the house and they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down. They worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And yet, what a glorious picture this is of representative of foreign nations and foreign tribes flocking to Jesus. Matthew's trying to tell you something. Only one king has this attractional power. It's reminiscent of another story a thousand years before about when King Solomon, another great king, had an encounter with someone called the Queen of Sheba. We see it in 1 Kings 10, and there's this story of Queen, uh, King Solomon, and out of the blue comes this woman, this great ruler from another country, and she also brings spices, and she also brings gold. And when she gets there, and she sees Solomon's relationship to the Lord, she sees the king and the Lord together, the Bible says, it took her breath away. And that was a picture of the coming of Christ. That was a type of of Christ, a foreshadowing of all the nations coming to Jesus. We also see this later in the Bible. The Apostle John got a glimpse famously in his vision of what it would look like for all the peoples to come to Jesus. We see that vision in Revelation 5. As John sees this vision of heaven where the Lamb is standing as if he'd been slain, standing He's surrounded by the hosts of heaven and they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on this earth. And later, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then what did John hear? He heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. And that's all of them. And this is what they were saying. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb 
be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. All peoples coming to worship Jesus. Only Jesus is worthy to get that type of worship. But it's not easy. We can read this and think, yes, that's going to happen. But it's not easy. I'm going to try to show briefly another video clip. And, uh, yeah, if... Uh, Okay. Very going. Well, most of Yep. Okay. Um, this is a little bit of video. I'm going to talk over it because you're not going to be able to see. But I want you to see how foreign this looks. This is a video from Nepal. And if you recently gave to some of the flood relief here at PCC, this is where your money went. Not up in the mountains, but in a minute. Uh, these are the Himalayas. Um, in a minute, he'll s scan down. And you'll see some villages down there. Uh, hopefully, uh, and those villages were racked by flood, and so we sent money to a pastor who could use that money for relief and church planting. But what's going on right now, okay, there you can see a little bit off the mountain. Don't fall. These are two of our workers that we're partnering with who are going 13,000 feet up in the Himalayas to a village that is uh, not reached with the gospel. And when they go up there, Everything is different. These two white dudes hike up this mountain and they find these Tibetans who have been um, displaced from Tibet. They're now in Nepal and they've started forming a village and they go up there and there they are being shepherds. You can see some of them to the right here. He's focusing on these uh, yaks because one of them almost charged him. Uh, this is Philip Isham, by the way. He used to go here. He doesn't go here anymore, but he, we partner with him still who's living in Nepal. And in a minute, I think he'll, he'll uh, scan over and you'll see some boom. I don't care. Those are the shepherds here. So this is the people group he's working with. But what I want you to see is really different. You can just see from this video, this is a radically different context than we are in. And guess what happens when Philip goes up the mountain and begins to share Jesus? They don't usually say, hey, that's Jesus. That's great. I want him. What they usually say is, hey, you've got a God named Jesus. We've got our own gods too. Jesus is an American God, but we have a Tibetan God or gods. Good for you. We'll keep our own God. That is to say that it's not easy work. Okay, that's, uh, you can, that's good. Um, Hopefully you saw the distinction between that culture and ours, but what I want to say is that this is hard, hard work. What we accept as the king of the world, these people groups are very reluctant to do. Very hard. In the text, we see people coming from another ethnic group, these wise men, different language they spoke, different culture, and they dropped their treasures and they knelt before King Jesus. That doesn't happen often. But we do have stories of victory. We just heard from Kenny Houston on his video. He recently told me this week that he was out. His job is to go and meet people, right? He's a church planter. That's shorthand for coffee drinker. Spends most of his time going to cafes and trying to make connections, trying to meet somebody so that the gospel will eventually come up in the conversation. Well, he had a friend named Mehmet. Mehmet's 40-year-old guy, um, had four kids, and he is a Kurdish person living, uh, transplanted in Kenny's country. 
Kenny went to meet with him with some Kurdish friends of Kenny's. Kenny brought two guys who were believers to meet this man who was an unbeliever. They went to his house. They had tea. They began to talk for over an hour about spiritual things. And the guy was asked the question, Mamat, what do you feel about Islam? And he said, are you a Muslim? And he said, well, my grandfather was Muslim. My daddy was Muslim. Everybody around me in this crazy country is Muslim. So I must be a Muslim. But then he began to talk about how he doubted the Quran and how he doubted Islam. And after 30, 45 more minutes of talking, one of Kenny's buddies said, oh, wait a minute, you're telling all these bad things about the Quran. What do you really believe? Not your dad, not your grandfather. What do you believe? And he began to open up. And he said, I would like to believe in Jesus. I think a lot of Kurdish people would like to believe in Jesus. But you have to understand, there are no Kurdish people who believe in Jesus. I think it would be too hard. So I'm not going to even hear your story. And Kenny was smart enough. Smart enough to bring two Kurdish believers with him. And so those guys took over the conversation. They said, well, actually... We trusted in Christ. Let me tell you my testimony. Let me tell you about Jesus and the gospel from my standpoint. And at the end of the day, Mehmet asked Jesus into his life. A new convert. We do have stories of victory from this great king of light. How should we respond? How would God want us to respond when we, when we read about these wise men? The Spirit only knows that. But I do know one thing from the text. Their response to seeing Christ was to submissively drop their treasures. Don't skip over how much money was laid down there at the feet of Jesus. It was actually, most scholars believe, these funds from these three treasures that allowed Jesus to flee to Egypt and start over with Joseph and Mary. They supported Joseph's work as he kept the Messiah alive. And here at TCC, I just want to say, we are not trying to make it hard to give. If God pricks you to give, there are many ways to be a wise man type of giver. You want to support Bible translation in China? You can do that. We've got it on the app. You can just give through the app. Any check that you write to TCC, you can write in the memo. Theological education for pastors overseas. We can get your dollars directly to church planting. You want gospel-centered disaster relief? Write that and we'll get it there for you. If you're supporting the Loving the City Center here locally, know that 7% of that gift will go internationally. I read this week a bit from Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer was doing his own reflections on the Christmas story. And he circles back to the shepherds when he thinks about giving. This is what he says. He's asking the question, what difference did it make for the shepherds to behold Christ and the angels? And this is what Francis Schaeffer said. He says, having had this overwhelming experience in the midst of their normal environment and having believed in the Savior, can we imagine one of the shepherds remarking, it's very nice that I've seen an angel, and it's very nice that I've seen the Christ, the Messiah, the Jews have waited so long for, and it's nice that I believed in him, and I'm going to heaven. But really, said the shepherd, 
In practice, it's not going to make any difference at all in my life. Schaefer said, this is inconceivable. After this experience, would the shepherds have accepted materialism as either an adequate philosophy or an adequate practice in life? This is when he says, wouldn't looking at the glory of heaven readjust one's value? I think so. Here's a great line. Grasping to have gold jingling in the pockets and angels singing in the heavens don't quite fit together. Can't have both. Materialism says grab it tightly and don't let it go. It defines you. Angels singing glory to God in the highest says let it go like the wise men did and we will use this money to glorify God. As you're doing Christmas planning this week, this month, I pray that you'll plan for the mission of Christ to reach all nations. In a moment, we're going to have a time with the Lord's Supper. And we'll reflect together on how Jesus came and died and poured himself out so that you could unite with him. Just as we eat and drink, something comes inside of us. So Jesus and his death was able to put the Spirit of God inside of us. But his work wasn't done there. Scriptures tell us that the mission of Christ is still alive and we must go like the shepherds. So this is your time of reflection. Does he want you to go? Maybe he does. Or does he want you to be a Simeon? Someone who dedicates their life to praying fervently that God would save the nations. Or are you going to be a wise man? Someone who gives their treasure to support the work of Christ. Only God can answer these. But I pray that you'll ask these questions as we take the supper together. Let me pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your word. I pray that every one of us will travel from the manger to missions. God, raise up shepherds. Raise up simians. Raise up wise men here who will go who will pray, and who will give. Lord, do your work by your spirit now in our hearts. Amen.